When I was in high school, my, uh, my government and sociology teacher was named Mr. Dusso, and in a sociology class, he had us do this project where everyone presented on just a, a personal interest topic, just kind of for, for sociology. Hey, let's just talk about what all of you like and why do you like it? Um, and so I did uh, my presentation on why following Jesus was important to me. That's what I talked about. And, you know, so we had a little class dis discussion, and then Mr. Dusso shared that he did not believe in Jesus because he had heard it said that God never gives us more than we can handle. And he had just had too much in his life. It was more than he could handle. So he said, well, if that's true, then either God is not who people say he is or God is not real. Uh, Mr. Dusso had to bury one of his kids. And if you've ever had to do that as a parent, that's just something no parent should have to do is have to bury one of their own children. And so he thought, there, there can't be a God. I've had too much pain. God can't be out there. And in high school, I just, I didn't know how to respond to him. Like, I didn't know how to explain to him that that's not really a true biblical idea. I didn't know how to express to him that, you know, Jesus is with you in your suffering and Jesus suffered so that one day we don't have to suffer. I just... I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't know how to convey the grace of God in that moment to him. And I was just unsure, how do you, how do you relate the suffering of Jesus to what Mr. Dusso had to go through? I just wasn't sure at the time. And whenever tragedy strikes, we're left with a thousand unanswered questions. We begin to ask, why? And what if? You know, what, what, if, what if I had stayed? What if I had gone? What if I just waited 30 more seconds? What if I would have said no? What if I would have said yes? We ask, why not me? How could this happen? Where is God? What is he doing? Why won't he hurry up and fix this already? What, what did I do to even deserve this? Right? We think, I've been good. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. God, why haven't you? We just keep going back to these questions. And if you're watching somebody else go through something like this, you wonder, what do I even say right now? What do I do? It just seems like no word or no action is going to fix the problem, going to resolve the pain. And I know many of you have recently gone through a difficult time, or you're going through one right now. And you have these questions, and you wonder what to do. Or you're watching somebody else go through it, and you don't know how to help them, how to be there for them. You're not sure what to say and what to do. And so several months ago, as I was planning uh, all the sermons out for 2024, I knew, man, we, we've got to go to the book of Job. We've just got to go to the book of Job. And, you know, initially I thought, hey, we'll do, we'll maybe do one or two weeks on Job. Because most, most preachers, you know, you only spend a week or two on Job, right? Because, like, the first couple chapters is a, is a story, and the last couple chapters is a story, and, and that's enough. And Job, let's be honest, it can be a very depressing book. Like it's just, Job really gets it and it gets hard and Job's a long book and most of the middle is just a bunch of back and forth conversations and everyone just kind of skips over those chapters. But the more I thought about it and studied it, the Holy Spirit really challenged me that we need to take our time in Job. So instead of doing just, you know, one or two weeks, we're going to do six weeks. Now, before you start to think, okay, how can I like not be at church? How can I miss a few of these Sundays? Because Oof, I don't know if I can do six weeks in Job. Let me, just, let me just tell you why you need Job. You need Job because the Bible is a very real and honest book. God included things in here that are unedited, 
they are unfiltered. And Job is the same way. Because you know when you go through something difficult, no matter how long that season actually is, it always feels a lot longer, doesn't it? And so Job is this long book where we get to sit and eavesdrop on how Job processed and went through his own time of suffering. And as many of you know, a difficult time is like a roller coaster. You have some good days, you have some bad days, you have some days where you feel like you're improving and you're making progress, and then you feel like you're just right back down in the pit again, and you're starting all over. And Job's the same way. God lets us see and hear what Job is really dealing with. So over the next six weeks, we'll watch Job weep. We'll sit in the dirt with him and his friends as he asks tough questions. You'll get to hear him yell and scream at God. You'll have to contemplate the questions that he's asking, the thoughts he's running through. And you'll be encouraged by his resilience and his faithfulness. And so let's begin this journey through suffering in Job chapter 1. If you'll turn there. And so Job chapter 1 begins this way. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we're introduced to Job in the start of this book, and Job is not an Israelite. That's why it says he comes from this land of Uz. Where is Uz? We don't know. That's where he comes from. So he's not an Israelite, and we think Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So Job probably lived even before Abraham, so he doesn't have the Old Testament. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments. He doesn't have the temple or the tabernacle. So his knowledge of God is very different. He, does, he can't just like, you know, flip open the Old Testament and read about what he's supposed to do. He has a very different kind of relationship with God. But we're, we're described, Job is described to us with these two words, blameless and upright. And the book will repeat those multiple times. And blameless means that Job is good by human standards. He's good by human standards. So nobody looked at Job and had a bad thing to say about the guy. He was a great guy, great neighbor. You know, you, you, you know, you'd love for him to marry your daughter. You'd love for him to be your neighbor. You'd love for him to come to work for you. Like nobody had anything wrong to say about Job. And upright means he was good by God's standards. So he's good by human standards and he's good by God's standards. So by the standards of both heaven and earth, Job's a good guy. He's done everything right, everything he's supposed to. No one's got anything bad to say about him. And we even get an example of this by how he, you know, every time his, his kids have a party, just, to be, just in case they accidentally did anything sinful, 
Job does something. He makes some sacrifices just to make sure any, every and any possible sin goes covered. He just wants to make sure all of his, everything's covered. So this is the kind of, of person that Job is. Now here's what happens next in verse 6. We switch from earth to heaven. So we go up to heaven in verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, a little weird. How does, how does Satan just show up to a meeting in heaven? Like, how does that work? Well, we got to understand a little bit about the ancient world. In the ancient world, they believed in something called the divine council. And they thought that all the gods, they get together in heaven and they have sort of like a, think of it like a business meeting or a board meeting. They all get together. And in the ancient world, the idea was all the gods get together and they have a discussion and maybe they have to bring it to a vote and see what the vote is. And so the Old Testament borrows that belief system. However, it's different because God, he has his meetings and he, he gets to disclose as much information as he wants. He gets to delegate tasks as he sees fit, but he never has to call a vote. He never has to do what anybody else tells him to do because he's God. He's in charge. So he doesn't need to convince other, other people what he should or shouldn't do. And he also never meets with other like gods. He always meets with other heavenly figures like the angels. So when we switch to heaven, God's got a little, he's got a board meeting. And so the angels are gathered to give him reports and he's telling them messages they need to deliver or things they need to do. And so Satan shows up because he was once an angel. And so he shows up. And so God says to Satan in verse seven, where have you come from? Now, that's not a question because God doesn't know. That's a question of, okay, Satan, let me hear your report. What's your report from your, your side of the, the team here, what you've got? And so he says, well, I've come from rowing throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Yeah, that's quite the compliment, isn't it? Would you like God to say that about you? Have you, have you considered my servant? Blameless, upright. Satan responds, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, Satan has a, a proposition like, now, now God, Job's not really following you for you. He's following you to benefit himself. He's only following you because you give him good things. If, if you stop giving him good things, he's not going to follow you anymore. You're not going to be an advantage to him. He'll, he'll get rid of you. So God accepts this little offer. So the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. It's terrible news. A whole bunch of your business is gone. 
While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept out on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and Job, they are dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. You've had some bad days. I don't know if anyone has quite had this kind of a day. Where in just a few moments, one servant comes, another servant comes, business is over. It's all gone. Another servant comes, your family's gone. All your servants are gone. Every, everything. Job, you don't have anything left. You were, one of, you were the wealthiest man in the world, and now you have nothing. So at this, verse 20, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Job's not done yet. So they have another council meeting. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Just like last time. And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now God, why'd you have to do that? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity. Even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Satan's quick to, I think he's maybe, maybe he's played this conversation out in his head before he, he went to the meeting. He said, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now... Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan's first point was, well, if you take away all this good stuff, he won't, he won't worship you anymore. And now Satan's point is, well, if now you, you hurt him, then he'll leave you. A person will sacrifice anything to protect themselves, so go after Job. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but... You must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Now them's fighting words. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. 
So just for a minute here, I want you to notice this. Job and his wife both experience almost the same suffering. I mean, those were her kids too. So Job and his wife, they have to bury their kids. And maybe she didn't, you know, go to the office every day, but that was their family business. That's how they paid the bills and provided for their needs, and all of it's gone. She's experienced the same kind of suffering, but her and Job have two very different responses and perspectives. Job's response is he worships the Lord. He says we've we've got to accept the good and the bad from the Lord. But her response is life is not worth living. Just curse God and be done with it already. Now, we aren't given much of a description of Job's wife, so I I don't know what kind of relationship she had. I don't know if the same thing that was said about Job could be said about his wife. I just don't know. But for those of you who are married, this is a really important lesson. Because I don't know that Job and his wife had the same relationship with God. Um, It's sort of like, the way I think about it is like this. Um, Have you ever been with your spouse out in public and one of their longtime old friends comes in and you have no idea who this person is and they start talking and joking and you're just kind of like politely nodding like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, oh, ha, 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 that's hilarious. I have no idea what they're talking about. And, you know, then they go on, you're like, who is that? Oh, we used to run together in junior high and, you know, blah, da, 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 da. You're like, okay, great. Is that how your relationship with God is like? And what I mean by that is, is it like you have your relationship with God over here and your spouse has their relationship with God over here, but if God walked into the room, you would feel pretty awkward. Like, wait, you've talked to God about that? huh, I had no idea. I don't understand what you guys are talking about. Is that like an inside joke? Because it's not just that you need to have your relationship with God and your spouse needs to have their relationship with God. It's the two of you together need to have a relationship with God. Like if God walked into the room and you're both sitting there, neither of you should be surprised by what you're saying to him. And I don't know if Job and his wife had that kind of relationship because Job is able to say, we've got to worship the Lord. But his wife is not so sure. And I don't know, sometimes in marriage this happens. One of you is doing really well and the other one of you is really struggling. And those are the seasons where the one who's stronger can, hey, God is still faithful. It's okay. He's going to get us through this. And then sometimes you switch places and one of you then is doing better and the other one's not doing so great. But when you go through tough times, the quality of your relationship with God will be revealed. And that's also true about your marriage. If your marriage has that kind of a relationship with God together. And a way to help you with that is to build holy habits now so that when the tough times come, you already have those habits in place. That support system is already in place to help you get through it. And here's just one way you can can begin to build that in. And that's just, as a couple, spend three minutes praying together every day. That could be over a meal, that could be in the morning before you head off uh, your separate ways, or that could be in the evening before you go to bed. Just, just spend like three, set a timer, three minutes, and just pray together. Share what's going on, talk to the Lord together. Now, in the story of Job, in these first two chapters, here's what I came to tell you in one sentence. 
The journey through suffering begins with tears, but it ends in glory. The journey through suffering begins with tears, but it ends in glory. We see from what happens to Job that there are some ways that we can respond to suffering. These are not the only ways, but these are some pretty good ways because the story tells us Job did not sin in anything that he did. So this seems like a good way to, to handle suffering at the beginning. And the first and natural response for many of us is to grieve. And that's actually the first place we start. When suffering happens, we begin by grieving. We begin with tears because grieving is healthy. It's good to acknowledge the loss and the pain. And the truth is you don't have to act tough. You don't have to hide your emotions. You know, some of us were in situations where we don't feel like it's okay to cry or it's okay to break down, or, but it is. And that's what Job begins with. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. That's, that's how you grieved in the ancient world. And he just accepted that this is terrible, this is awful, and I'm just going to feel it. I'm going to let it out. And that's where he began. And that's where we can begin, too. I was finishing my closing shift at the campus library, so, you know, locking up the library for the night, and I got a text from my roommate that said, hey, you need to get back to the dorm right away. Something's happened. So I, I head down the hill on campus, I go into our dorm lobby, and as soon as I, I walked into the lobby, I mean, the air was thick. I mean, you could just feel it, like, oh. Like, I was having a pretty good day, and then the second I opened that door, I'm like, oh no, Something, something's bad. And, you know, a lot of the guys have gathered in the lobby, and everyone's just kind of quietly, nervously sitting there, and I can hear, uh, we had a um, residence directors who had an apartment attached to the lobby, and I can just, the door is closed, but I can hear somebody crying and like scream crying in the other room. I'm like, this is not good. I sit down, and the president of our college came in after a few minutes, um, and he said, you know, I said, brothers, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but, but your friend, Brandon, um, he was in a car accident. He was on his way to church where he's the youth minister, and he was involved in an accident on the highway, and, and he didn't make it. I'm so sorry. And I mean, you've got a bunch of college dudes that just burst into tears. You know, we loved Brandon. He was hilarious. He was a great guy. And I, you know, I try to be one of the strong guys at first. Like, I was like, nope, I'm an RA. I've got to be tough for everybody else. So I was trying to not, not cry right away. I'm, I'm giving people hugs. I'm like running through the dorm, finding all the Kleenex boxes and bringing them to the lobby for everybody. And... Uh, my roommate, he just kind of grabbed me for a minute, and he said, hey, you don't have to be strong. He was our friend, too. And I just kind of, like, melted in the hallway and just sobbed for a few minutes. And it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be overwhelmed with the sorrow and the pain, because sometimes life does not seem fair, and suffering is real. Our second response is to sit with your friends. Here's how chapter 2 ends. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him 
because they saw how great his suffering was. So Job is, I mean, he's, he's in such a bad shape that they don't even recognize their friend. That's how upset he is. And they just, for seven days, they just sit there. No words, they're just there with him. And so sit with your friends. If you're, if you're the one suffering, sit with your friends. And if your friend is the one suffering, just go sit with them. Just go sit with them. It's okay to cry with them. It's okay to not have any words and just, just be there. And I think a lot of times we feel like we have to say something um, for a couple of reasons. One is a lot of us are very uncomfortable with silence. Like if you were just sitting in a room and it was just dead quiet, you would, you would start to feel very uncomfortable and very awkward. And you're like, we need some noise. And so you'll start talking or you'll turn the TV on. You're just like, I just can't. We, it, silence just bugs you. And so sometimes we just feel like, well, I've got to say something because this is just silent and this is awkward. And the other reason is, well, we generally, we genuinely want to help the person. And so we want to say something that's going to alleviate the pain, something that's going to help them. But a lot of times there is, there is nothing you can say. Like it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to make anything better. It's not going to help. And the reality is we don't have to fix it. We can just be there with that person. And it's okay. You know, an older pastor gave me advice whenever I go to visit somebody either in the hospital or in a really tough situation. He says, don't feel like, he just told me, don't feel like you've got to have like a speech ready to go or a little mini sermon for them or have all the right words. He said, people will only remember two things. They will remember your presence and they will remember that you prayed. He said, they won't even remember what you said in your prayer, but they'll just remember you prayed. That's it. And so that's what I try to do. And that's what you can do too. When somebody's struggling, they'll remember that you were there. And if you pray for them, they'll remember that you prayed for them. They'll remember that you brought a meal over. They may not remember, like, what, did you bring a casserole or did you bring a soup? Or they'll just remember you were there. And that's what matters the most. And the third way we can respond is do not sin. In everything Job did, the text tells us he did not sin. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing, and he didn't say anything that was considered sinful. So what does it mean to curse or to charge God so that we don't do that? Well, here's a few things. I, I kind of went through some passages in the Old Testament that talks about this. Here's kind of what cursing or charging God looks like. It looks like taking credit for what God has done. It can look like misjudging God's motives. So thinking God did something because he's mad with you when maybe he didn't do anything at all. It's thinking that God will not act. So, so actually beginning to think or believe, man, God's not going to do anything. He's not going to show up in this moment. That's actually, you're actually charging God with wrongdoing because he, he's going to act. He will do something. Believing you know better than God, trusting in your own wisdom and knowledge, and saying there is no God. Because when we charge or curse God, we make God less than God. We make him seem like somebody that he isn't, like he has a character that isn't consistent with who he tells us that he is. And so in our grief, here's the key. The key is to stay with God. Don't turn away from him. Don't, in your grief and your anger, run away from him and hide. But at the same time, don't just stuff your emotions and just try to pretend like, I'm good, I'm fine, everything's okay. No, 
It's okay to break down. It's okay to be upset. But don't run from God either. Stay with him. And God is the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, why would you do that, God? I wonder if in a way it's because he asks us to conserve it to consider another one of his servants. Because Jesus also said, well, have you considered my servant Jesus? There's no one like him on earth. And see, Job, for the most part, Job is relatively innocent. Now, he's probably not perfect, but he's a good guy. But Jesus is the only one who is truly innocent. And he's the truly innocent one who suffered for us. So Job suffered in a way, but Jesus suffered truly innocent of everything. And it's because of Jesus' innocent suffering on the cross that you and I can enter heaven where there will be no more suffering. You see, Jesus suffered so that we can all have a day where there will no longer be any suffering. We're not there yet. Jesus' suffering doesn't remove all the suffering right now because the world is still sinful and the world is still broken. But Jesus suffers that we all can have a day in the future when there will be no more suffering. As the book of Revelation ends, it tells us that when Jesus returns, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. And that's the promise that Jesus gives to us. And all you have to do to receive that future with no suffering is become a follower of Jesus. That begins with getting baptized, and that continues with obeying and following Jesus with your entire life and everything you do and everything you say and being faithful to him. And so the journey through suffering, it begins with tears, but it ends in glory because there is a way that God has acted. He has done something, and so he will be with you in your suffering, but at the end of everything, you'll be in glory. All the suffering will be gone, and there will no longer be any suffering in your future. It will cease to exist. And that's the good news that we get to have in Jesus. And so right now, we respond to suffering by grieving. We sit with our friends. We stay faithful to God. We don't sin in our grief. And if we are faithful to Jesus, if we accept his forgiveness and grace in our lives, then we will receive a day with no more suffering. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for being the suffering servant sent by God. I'm so thankful for everything you endured. I'm thankful that you suffered and died for all of us to save us from our sins and to defeat evil and death so that we know that there's a hope and a promise for eternal life, so that we can know that there's going to be a day when you will come back and you will set the world right, and we will no longer have suffering or pain. And Father, I ask that you would, that you would help all of us to know that you are there and you are with us in the middle of our suffering and our struggles and our pain. God, help us to be a loving community that can come around each other when life gets difficult and when tragedy strikes. Holy Spirit, help us to know the comfort 
that you bring us from God. Help us to encourage us when we are struggling. And ultimately, Jesus, help us to hold on to the hope you've given us until the day we get to see you face to face. It's in your name I pray. Amen.